Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good morning. This is Medical Matters. I'm Dr. Brett Delone along with Dr. Peter Breyer. Thanks for joining us this morning. We have got an interesting show. We've got your phone calls. 540-0580 is the talk line number. But first, the news. And Peter, you're up. Yeah, we have uh, an interesting article that uh, if you live near an airport for more than three years, your blood pressure may be higher than normal. Uh, There was a study in Europe that studied 200 people between the ages of 40 and 66. Half lived near an airport with high levels of noise for more than three years. And uh, they found that people living in near airports were more likely to have hypertension, 40% versus 24%. And people exposed to more aircraft noise were also more likely to have heart damage, the study showed. I didn't say a cause and effect, but there's a relationship. They can't establish a cause and effect, although it certainly seems like it may have something to do with it, especially... uh, Maybe disturbing your sleep at night. Does the degree does the degree of proximity? That is to say, if you live half a mile from the airport, is that better than living a quarter of a mile from the airport? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a good question. That's not answered in this. Because uh, I think that would be very compelling if that was if that was part of the results uh, that uh, proximity was worse than just nearness. It doesn't say. Uh, it doesn't get into those kinds of details whether how far you have to live from the airport. Because I remember um, when I was a kid, I lived near Kennedy Airport in um, Long Island, and uh, we had jets, you know, planes going over all the time. I mean, and nobody thought a thing about it, but uh, maybe it is bad for you. But I don't think there was the really loud, loud noise that you might get if you live right under the uh, approach you know, or where they take off. So uh, you wonder what it might do to property values near airports. <laughs> Depends on the airport. Yeah. At any rate, uh, it's something to consider. Yeah, Maybe it's interesting. using, uh, you know, something to cover up noise when you're sleeping. If you live near an airport, it might be beneficial to you. Uh, in other news, uh, there is a rescue happening uh, in Antarctica. Uh, at the Amundsen Scott South Pole Research Station, uh, they're not releasing the re- the actual cause, but apparently there is a medical emergency to uh, one of the scientists living at the at the South Pole. Of course, is, of course, it is the dead of winter. Uh, in fact, this week uh, is the winter solstice in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, and uh, for only the second time since the 1950s, they are sending planes to try and land at the South Pole. Uh, they're sending a twin otter, in fact, a pair of twin otters from Canada to try and uh, and evacuate one of the scientists at the South Pole. I remember a few years ago there was a late a, wo- a woman, a it doctor, was, I believe, with breast cancer. It was in fact the doctor there who uh, was uh, required to find a way to to begin the treatments and the diagnosis herself. 
of her breast cancer. That might have been the North Pole. <laughs> no, it was the South Pole. Was it? Yeah, there are no people at the North Pole. How did they get her um, out? They didn't. They, they, they had to wait till spring, and uh, she, she made the diagnosis with the help of the, uh, the nurse that was there with her and then uh, started treatments um, with what she had. So um, in other news, uh, if you want to remember better uh, what you have learned, there is a, a study that suggests exercising um, 40 minutes, I'm sorry, four hours after you after you study something is the is a way to improve your memory not right afterwards and not later but <laughs> yeah isn't it now there is a study that i don't know how anyone thought of it but so sort yes of they, interesting yeah they this is uh, in the journal current biology and they took people and they they had took a control group where they they asked them to learn something and they did no activity and then they took a study group and they started their activities at different times uh, from right afterwards to a day afterwards and those people who started working out four hours afterwards um, had uh, the best results Uh, those people who did not work out had the second best results and those people who worked out right away or much later were not as good (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's one for the books. I, I can't really explain that. Maybe uh, maybe uh, if you're exercising right after you read something, you uh, change the, your body chemistry somehow. Maybe uh, Or maybe you just get distracted. PH, or you get distracted. And if you wait four hours, then you have had the t- time to process it, and uh, you change your chemistry in a good way. Anyway. I, I, uh, I have one other thing that uh, we sort of may disagree on. Uh, FDA approves weight loss stomach pump, Aspire Assist to combat obesity, and basically it's a uh, it involves a minimally invasive surgery that uh, for very morbidly obese people, uh, where they uh, insert a little uh, drainage tube i guess into the stomach you can pump out after eating some of the food it's basically uh like a peg tube a peg tube is a feeding tube that we use now for people who are undernourished uh, or can't eat for themselves or having chemotherapy or surgery to their head and neck and so would have trouble chewing and swallowing and uh, it's an endoscopy procedure it's pretty common uh and uh, and this is this is the exact opposite of what we usually use that procedure for um it has some disadvantages in my book in that um, the, the the act of putting the tube in will make it more difficult to do something more definitive surgically. Um, if these patients, if they're using this as a bridge to try and, and get these patients to a, a more definitive surgical procedure, this will make the surgical procedure uh, more difficult and somewhat more risky in terms of complications. Also, uh People think they can eat whatever they want, but it's not true. They have to eat a uh, liquid, more liquid diet uh, so that the device can work. And um, uh, it also, uh, they have to eat, chew their food really well and have smaller particles so that the assistive device can work. And they found that people eat, patients eat less with this therapy than they did before. For some reason, maybe their stomach shrinks. Maybe, but uh, 
I think there are other better alternatives, even even less invasive alternatives. If you really want to lose uh, weight over a short period of time, the FDA has approved uh, balloons to be placed endoscopically in your stomach for a period of six months. Uh, they're space-occupying. Uh, they show good results, uh, certainly in the short run. Well, so the weight loss, uh, the first year they had 46-pound weight loss, but in the second year only another four pounds, so 50 pounds over two years. Yeah, I, um, I don't think it's going to catch on except perhaps as a bridge in those patients that are that are very sick and poor candidates for more definitive surgical procedures. But truthfully, um, you know, those procedures are being done on, on larger and sicker people all the time. So, Of course, we don't know what they're going to charge for this device, and patients will need frequent monitoring. Uh, you know, maybe your uh, balloon alternative might be superior in it some It might ways. be, but it's, it's going to be more expensive. The balloon alternative will definitely be more expensive yeah. than this would be. And, of course, that might have other uh, side effects. Uh, what if the balloon breaks? Yeah, that's been studied. Um, the balloons are, are pretty safe uh, when they break. That They have been shown not to be obstructing. Um, the real problem with the balloons is that when they're first placed, the first three to four days, you feel awful. You have nausea and vomiting, and your body is trying to get rid of the balloon. And you just have to, 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 to power through that bad part. Uh, and, uh, and it's almost universal. So that's, that's the really bad problem. And plus the risk of endoscopy. But this also has the risk of endoscopy associated with it. Okay, very interesting. We're going to go to a break. When we come back, more medical matters. Stay with us. That's right. The talk line number is 5400580. This is the Medical Matters. I'm Dr. Brett Delone along with Dr. Peter Breyer. So uh, this week, uh, Philadelphia became the first large city in the United States uh, to pass a tax on uh, soda, on uh, sugary drinks, not just sugar drinks, but uh, regular soda and diet soda. Yeah, and diet soda as well. And energy drinks. Uh, this excludes drinks unless the actual juice content is less than 50%, uh, and they are charging 1.5 cents per ounce. Which doesn't sound like much, but for a 12-pack, it's a two over $2 increase in price. So. And, and the idea here, this is, this is the first uh, soda tax was passed by Berkeley, California, um, and... Uh, and the idea here is twofold. They they want to change people's behavior. This is social engineering. Uh, they want you to drink what they want you to drink, not what you want to drink. And uh, they also want to increase revenue. Right. And the way they passed it was not by talking about the health benefits so much as the tax revenue they would receive, which uh, in Philadelphia they're predicting a $91 million uh, increase in tax revenue, which for a city, I think, is a lot of money. Um, yeah, so they're expecting to raise $400 million over five years. So the interesting question is, will this change very much about what people eat and drink? I mean, uh, the consumption of uh, sodas, diet sodas and regular sodas, Coke and Pepsi, has uh, actually been declining over the last few years. And uh, do you think this is really going to have an effect on that decline? I don't think it's going to change the arc of the Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I think it will because some people may have less uh, inclination to buy soda drinks. Because of the cost. Yeah. 
because of the cost. Like I said, it's two dog going to be two dollars more for a twelve pack of soda. So that's a for a kid who has barely any money. That's a lot. Uh, that can be a lot. So I, anyway, uh, I think it's. Uh, I mean, if you look at it as a tax measure, you know, you can look at it that way, and it's just a tax, like any tax. No, I don't. I don't see it that way. To me, it's social engineering. It's and and I I don't object to the idea of social engineering, but I want to call it what it is. That is, we tax cigarettes because we think cigarettes are bad for you, and because society doesn't want to pay for the health consequences of people smoking cigarettes. That's that's. Let's state that openly and and discuss it and decide whether it's in the interest of society and it's worth taking money out of people's pockets and delivering it to the bureaucrats in City Hall. Well, well, here's an interesting little tidbit of information for you. They received the uh, committee Philadelphians for a Fair Future, a group supporting the tax, received a $1.6 million donation from Michael Bloomberg. (laughs) And I'm sure that the group opposing it received significant donations from Coke and Pepsi. I mean, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. Actually, Uh, the uh, Teamsters Union was very opposed to it. The local grocers was very opposed to it. I'm not sure why the Teamsters would be so opposed to it. but Anything uh, that decreases the sales of merchandise decreases the ability of the Teamsters to deliver that merchandise from place to place. So I'm a Teamster. I want to keep moving things from place to place. I get it. That seems reasonable to me. Um, I I think it's... uh, it's not going to change things very much. People are already drinking less and less Coke and Pepsi, Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi. And I don't think that trend is going to be reversed or significantly augmented by this. It is just a way, another way for Big Brother to take uh, a few more pennies and a few more dollars out of your pocket. Yeah, they, uh, they do know how to take pennies and dollars out of your pockets, that's for sure. Um, let's, uh, let's just get a quick update. Uh, a Seattle hospital... Um, has warned 650 dialysis patients since 2011 that they may have been exposed to hepatitis B because of a lapse in screening procedures associated with uh, dialysis at the Virginia Mason Hospital and Medical Center uh, in King County. Uh, that that's that sounds like a lot. It's over four years. Um, they uh, they they just were doing the procedure wrong. They're not really sure there's going to be that many patients, but they did identify a procedural problem. And so they want everybody who has had dialysis during that period of time to come get screened. Um, That's it, uh, we hear stories like this. It seems to me every month, <laughs> where there's uh, you know we had local stories here both at York and at Hershey uh, in terms of heart bypass machines that weren't maintained properly uh, and putting people at risk for various bloodborne diseases. You know, no matter how many measures you put in place to try to prevent errors. Where human beings are involved, there are bound to be errors, and it's a fact of life. Uh, the best you can do is to try to prevent them, and when they do occur, to be upfront about them and try to correct them. Uh, I think you'll never achieve absolute perfection in anything, and in healthcare as well. Do you think that the... Um Overall, the procedures and policies and efforts that are being made to make these things safe, dialysis, endoscopy, heart, lung operations, surgery in general, 
you think that the trend is is much safer? I think it's much safer. Over I think the last things 20 years. are much safer now than they were. Uh, there's less, less medical errors, it seems. Although some of our modern technology uh, can cause medical errors, and uh, you still have uh, the human component. Uh, you still have to transpose information into the computer. If you miss something, if you miss a medication, a pharmacist misses a medication, a nurse misses a medication or gives a medicine to the wrong patient when you have two people in a room, you have human error. And uh, until you make perfect human beings, which will never happen, uh, you will have medical errors. And like I said, the best thing you can do is look at why they occur and try to correct them. And if they do occur, to be upfront about them and, and uh, you know, take care of the people that have been uh, victimized by it. Uh, I don't know any way you can make medicine or really anything 100% perfect. And uh, But it is much better, I think, than it used to be, uh, probably somewhat due to computerization, but also due to many aspects, like in surgery, you have to double-check, right, the name and what your procedure, et cetera. Um, yeah, I, uh, the, our processes and procedures are so much more um, thorough, and, and uh, they're, they're adhered to every time. Uh, so, uh, and the, the model we've used is the checklist in the, uh, airliner. You know, we do the checklist thing, uh, in the operating room, which was not something that was commonly done when my career started. So I do think these things are a lot safer. Right. But you still have human beings. If you, if they don't follow the checklist, you have the checklist, but if you don't follow it or you skip a step and check that you did it you still have the ability to make an error, and uh, they still occur, unfortunately. I mean, despite this, this headline from Seattle, you still feel perfectly confident going to get dialysis at a dialysis center. Well, I, <laughs> again, uh, consumer needs to be aware, and people need to be aware of their health care and aware of what's going on around them, and they, you know, that's another check. The patient themselves are a check of what's going on. And how the physicians can, are a check. How can you, as a, as a patient, distinguish between a dialysis center that's well-run and one that's a concern? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, you're talking about technology here that you can't inspect, that you can't be sure that checklists have been absolutely. followed. There's no way to, to judge that. I think you just have to, to take the fact that the odds are uh, you know, in your favor. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go to a break. When we come back, uh, more medical matters. Stay with us. That's right. The talk line number here at Medical Matters is 5400580, and we're going to go to the phones, and we're going to start with Janet in Enola. Hi, Janet. You're on. Janet, are you on? Uh, let's see. You must have a technological glitch. Janet, don't don't give up yet, Janet. Hello, Janet. Are you there? Uh, maybe right. she hung up. No, I don't think so. 
Okay. Uh... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hold on, Janet. Let me, uh, let me switch to Bob and see if we can hear him. Bob, are you there? No. All no, right. we have a technological problem, whatever okay. it might be. So um, back to the uh, the soda tax. Uh, what else are they going to tax? Are they going to tax, uh, you know... They can tax the air. They can tax <laughs> uh, the sugar content in the food you buy in the grocery store. They can tax... Uh, French fries. They can raise they can taxes tax on what they're taxing. <laughs> mayonnaise. They can tax Butter? ice cream. Um, I want. I want to know if um, if um, Bloomberg is going to be the final arbiter of what we're allowed to eat and drink in this country. And well, I want to know. Let's not go overboard. It's only one city. <laughs> I'm just. It is the what third or fourth largest city in the country, though. Yes, Philadelphia. I believe Philadelphia is the fourth largest city in the country. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's what, three and a half million people in Philadelphia? Yeah, who are going to be paying an extra, you know, couple of dollars for. Uh, and it's one of the poorest cities in the country, Philadelphia. And um, I don't know. So what are they, what are they going to drink? More water? <laughs> uh, how about those flavored waters without uh, any well, they have nothing in them except a little flavoring, and I don't think they're going to be taxed. I don't Not yet. know. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Well, maybe they should tax coffee and tea because hot drinks can cause cancer, too. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Uh, yeah, very us. hot drinks are probably carcinogenic. We have um, a uh, study published by the Cancer Agency of the World Health Organization suggests that drinking hot drinks greater than 149 degrees Fahrenheit can cause cancer to develop in their esophagus. And uh, this has been known for a while. But uh, why do you think people are still drinking really, really hot beverages? I mean, it uh, it would seem, you know, logical that you let your coffee or tea cool off a little bit or, uh, as the British do with their tea, add a little milk. Uh, they like the hot drinks. They like the the feeling of holding a hot cup. They like the 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 warmth it gives it them when they drink it. It's through your body. Yeah, it's, it's like it's, a hot shower sometimes. It, it's, it's thermal therapy, and <laughs> uh, and people want the the heat. Um, and I I think you know all things in moderation. A moderate temperature drink is better than one that's way too hot or way too cold. Well, this may uh, sort of blow your mind, but esophageal cancer was responsible for four hundred thousand recorded deaths worldwide. In 2012. No, it, it actually, uh, it's such a common problem in Asia, uh, uh, much more likely to be a uh, uh, a significant percentage uh, of the death rate than it is here in the United States. Well, why do you think in Asia is that they're smoke, uh, eating a lot of smoked fish? And yeah, that would the, seem to be stomach cancer. Is that esophageal too? Both. Yeah, that's uh, so. 
I don't know. You know, people, uh, the thing is, there are so many different things that uh, maybe it's hard to keep track of everything that may cause cancer and uh, avoid everything. It should be pretty easy to drink. What was the temperature? 149 degrees. Okay, limit yourself to 140. That's that's pretty warm. Get a little thermometer and yeah. check it before you drink. 140 <laughs> degrees. That's the that's the limit. Okay, let's try these phone calls again. I'm going to try Janet who called back. Thanks, Janet. Are you there, Janet? I'm here. Can you hear me? We can hear you now. Awesome. All righty. Hey, this isn't anything earth-shattering. I just had a laugh when you were talking about the tax on sodas. And I have a newspaper article from back when Truman was president. Okay, this is in the 40s. It was in my husband's little suitcase from World War II. And they got a picture of these kids with these signs saying, don't tax our soft drinks. The grown-ups duck a tax. Don't slap it on us. They've got all these little signs. School children, and they, and part of the article is cut off. Uh, That's really interesting. How did you yeah, come to keep, was, how did you come to keep an article from the 1940s? How? Yeah. Um, it was in a suitcase that my husband carried around all through World War II. That's and interesting. I had it copied. I'm not quite sure why. That's but, pretty interesting. Uh, you know, uh, Truman tried to pass universal health care also way, way back. Yeah, it also said something in here about them. Uh, they approved additional loans to help Mexico. <laughs> All I know is it was May 1st, but so, I don't know what year it was. So, so it's been 70 years or 60 years and nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And nothing's <laughs> changed, okay? But Very interesting. A quick question about the esophageal cancer. Because yes. my husband had that and I still remember the surgeon who operated on him uh, said to us, it was a very rare cancer. Now, this was in 1993. Well, it's rarer in the United was, States than, as Brett said, than in, like, Asia. But yeah, go ahead, he man. said it was more prevalent in Asia. And he said... Uh, I don't know. Maybe he said it's because of all the tea they drink. And I said, well, he drinks a lot of coffee. And he said, no, I mean scalding hot tea. That's, uh, <laughs> and it's been known for a while about the uh, possibility that very hot drinks might cause, uh, lead to esophageal cancer. And uh, it makes sense. It's an irritant on the esophagus, especially when it's very hot. And um, unfortunately, esophageal cancer has been a very difficult to treat uh, cancer and uh, still remains pretty difficult to treat. Yes, I Although know. We've made some advances for sure. Okay. Well, anyhow. Just Thanks very much for your call. Thanks for your Sorry. call. But yeah. so have you seen uh, esophageal cancer uh, with surgery? Uh, are you uh, are they doing radiation and chemo prior to operations on yeah. on esophageal cancer? And it, and it makes more tumors resectable, uh, and it, so it allows uh, you know more aggressive treatment. Uh, but the results are still poor overall because the diagnosis tends to be late.
overall. Uh, and uh, in, in that way, it's, it's sort of uh, uh, similar to pancreatic cancer uh, in that by the time you make the diagnosis, uh, the patients are, are generally fairly late-stage patients. I, I think one of the problems with esophageal cancer is that the symptoms can be sort of innocuous at first, uh, maybe just heartburn, reflux-type symptoms, and uh, you might take an over-the-counter or even a prescription PPI drug or H2 blocker, and it may stop the symptoms. symptoms. That's right. And you really don't, uh, don't appreciate what's happening to you. There are uh, about 17,000 diagnosed esophageal cancer patients in the United States every year uh, and, uh, and nearly as many deaths uh, every year, uh, which, which tells you uh, how much trouble we have successfully treating the disease. The risk factors, of course, include, in addition to hot liquids, smoking and uh, drinking alcohol are uh, high risk factors, um, particularly smoking. Right, and ingestion of toxins as well uh, to the esophagus. So uh, a very difficult and really terrifying disease in many respects. If you have symptoms, you need a, a scope. You need an endoscopy. Okay, let's go to Bob. Hi, Bob. Have a nice uh, morning. I'm a mayor down here in Adams County, and I agree with everything you've said. You have to say, in my opinion, when you're in politics. But we're overregulated, and there are too many taxes, and I try to keep them down. And number two, I have spent a lot of time in Japan with the Japanese up on the Sea of Japan in February, and you would go into a soup shop, and these guys would take the pot. It'd be boiling at 212, and they'd pour it in their cup, and they'd drink it right down. I'd have to wait for a half an hour before wow. I could even put my <laughs> finger in it. See, I think the British have the right idea about their tea. They add milk to it, and that's that cools right. it down. But anyway, the reason why I was calling is turning 79 this summer, still a swimmer, uh, time to do the 10-year colonoscopy. And with all this C. diff and MRSA and all that around and my friends dying of it, I'm going to do the colonoscopy, but how long does this keep going on? As long as you're alive, or is this the last one? Um, this is a, a not a question of how old you are chronologically, but how old you are physiologically. So, um, if you're very healthy and have a more than 10 year life expectancy, yeah, uh, you'd be very interested. Go on Bob, to go to the test. We, we know you well enough to go. Have you look up your actuarial? I mean, a fairly detailed actuarial survival. So look at your life expectancy based on your education, how active you are, your medications, you know, your health history. You can find those things online, and you're going to find that your life expectancy is is certainly more than ten years, uh, as 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 specific to your health situation. So well, as that's long a as good thing. it's a good thing. So as long as you're physiologically that health healthy, then you need to prevent problems, and uh, so. I wouldn't necessarily take it to the bank that you're going to do another colonoscopy in 10 years because 10 years from now, you might not be as healthy. But I wouldn't put an age on saying you should never get it done again. Well, okay. interestingly oh. enough, the, uh, um, the preventative task force, which we've criticized many times, came out this week reaffirming the need for colon cancer screening every 10 years. Up to, now, they say up to age 75, but... I, I agree with Brett. You can't put an exact age on it. It depends on your health and your life expectancy. And they don't specify that only colonoscopies are the answer. Uh, there is a what test. About, what about PSAs? I'm going to keep doing my PSAs? Up to that's 75. That's different. Yeah, that's. <laughs> no, as a screening test, if <laughs> you've had prostate cancer or uh, you have some suspicion of prostate cancer, more than just a screening uh you know, I would do a PSA. Well, I'd like to. I'm a one and a half guy. 
I will tell you that uh, I just operated on a patient who was 83 years old who every day started with 100 push-ups in a row. Mm. I'll tell you, that, that's a guy who's, who's physiologically in awfully good shape considering his chronologic age. Was his name Louis Zapparini? It was not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a HIPAA violation. <laughs> uh, okay, I got to go, Bob. Thanks See a lot, guys. guys. Take, Take care. care. Thanks for good. Okay, we're off to our last break. We'll be right back. We are back. That's right, the podcast button at whp580.com. You can listen to Medical Matters if you miss us on Saturday morning. I'm also going to be hosting the Ken Matthews Show on July 5th, so I look forward to our regular listeners joining me that afternoon. Um, let's go to uh, Richard in Lancaster. Hi, Richard, you're on. John, um, I wanted to ask about hardening of the arteries because uh, I had gotten uh, a CAT scan of the brain and you could actually see it in in my brain. It, and they, they said that was normal. I thought, well, how could that be normal? That's how normal because, you, yeah. How old are you? Um, 59. Yeah, if you were nine, it wouldn't be any. So it's just a, a fact of life. Have you been a smoker, sir? No. no. Uh, diabetic? Nope. No. Okay, well, uh, those are things that predispose to it. And 59 is still young, but you may see little white areas on the brain, uh, which is very common as you, uh, as you get older, that oh. are considered to be like mini, little mini strokes due to capillaries closing, et cetera. Some of that may be hereditary. As long as you're not smoking and as long as you're trying to exercise and as long as you're um, managing your diabetes if you have that and managing your high cholesterol if you have that, you are doing what you can to uh, to protect yourself from, from these problems. What about aspirin? Uh, well, we would have a debate here between Dr. Breyer and myself in that... Uh, well, I, I think know in your case, I encourage I take people. Aspirin. I encourage people to take aspirin fairly across the board if they don't have risk factors for bleeding. I think the data is pretty compelling that uh, the benefits outweigh the risks. Well, it depends on your age. You you yes. start at age forty. I, I something in my forties. I can't tell you. Yeah, I, I've forgotten exactly when. And I, I would agree with that. I think there's the the argument for continuing aspirin beyond age seventy or seventy five is is not not as good. Uh, in fact, there was a large True. study that just came out that showed. The, the best years to benefit from a daily aspirin were between the ages of 50 and 75. You're talking about cardiovascular. Cardiovascular. But it also decreases the incidence of colon cancer, That's which right. we were talking about earlier. Uh, I take an aspirin, uh, baby aspirin, three days a week. I take a baby aspirin every day except for when I forget to buy it, which I have lately you can not come been over taking my it. office, I have uh, about 20,000 uh, samples. I'll take some. <laughs> a baby aspirin. So, Richard, don't worry about it. Just keep trying to protect yourself the best you can. That's a, just a function of aging, it sounds like. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. So long. So, speaking of aging, uh, there's a trend in medicine um, that uh, uh, that older physicians are continuing to work uh, as across all of the workforce. Uh, people are living longer, so they're working longer, so they're retiring later. Some of it's economic, some of it's just personal. And uh, so there is now a trend that's being reported across uh, multiple health systems where the systems are requiring doctors, especially surgeons, although I don't know why it should be particular to surgeons. Uh, well, surgeons often have to make decisions on the spur of the moment. and um, Don't you? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> a surgical era 
not all the time, but in general, can be much more serious than just a medication error. I'm not saying in all cases, but you understand what I'm saying. I, I do. Mean, surgeons have literally have their your life in their hands. It's part of what makes the job stressful, truthfully. Uh, being a, that's why I didn't become a surgeon. Recognizing that. So, I'm very clumsy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what they're doing is these systems are now uh, testing doctors uh, at a certain age. And they, they used an example of a, of a chief of surgery, in fact, who was 79, uh, who had never had any uh, problems, never had any adverse outcomes, but he was coming back from some health uh, problems of his own and uh, the hospital asked him to be tested. Now, what kind of tests do they do? They do cognitive uh, and just sort of general health screening testing. Uh, and there are outfits sort of cropping up all across the country. There's one in Maryland uh, where you go and you're tested to, to find out what your cognitive situation is and, and sort of your uh, ability to, to process and, uh, and make decisions. I personally would not have a problem with this if it were me, although I want the, if the hospital's idea is to test me, I want them footing the bill for the testing. I don't want to have to pay for it myself. Well, the thing is the testing is very arbitrary. Uh, it's not been really proven. Uh, it's the same thing with driving evaluations for elderly people. Uh, we don't really know what makes you an unsafe, and we can see somebody's unsafe. But when people are on the borderline, it becomes very difficult to tell. And it's going to be the same with surgeons, I think. Um, air traffic controllers have to retire at age 56. Pilots used to have to retire at 60. Now that's moved to 65. Um, I mean, know. people are living longer, and uh, people over 60s are still, you know, very functional and, and uh, able to uh, perform their duties. Uh, I just hate to see something arbitrary uh, that's not really proven. Uh, uh, you know, I've 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 been. Well, under, it would affect you more than I've me. been under I, the I care. Just, I've been under the care of surgeons and physicians who were in their seventies and felt fine with it. Felt completely comfortable. Well, and then there's the question of the experience. I mean, experience mm -hmm. counts a lot, and I think experience makes a surgeon a better surgeon. Experience makes an internist a better internist. So where does the curve start to reverse? If you know what I mean. Uh, when does it? When does aging become a risk factor for you? And that's probably a very individualistic thing. And I think doctors and surgeons have to look into themselves somewhat about when they feel they're not able to perform their duties well. A hundred thousand physicians in their seventies, uh, and uh, the uh, the average retirement age for doctors from two thousand to two thousand and fourteen has changed from sixty three to sixty eight. Uh, so I think it's it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I do think it would be good if there were policies at most hospitals. I do think state boards should be looking at this and making sure that the interests of the patients are protected uh, do you, do every think, step of the way. Do you think physicians should be retested periodically? I mean, the, the process of continuing to be accredited at hospitals and continue to have your privileges is ongoing no matter what your age. So... We're evaluating. Well, when you when you reapply for privileges at a hospital, they do reevaluate exactly. your situation, no matter whether you're forty or sixty or seventy. But they're not doing cognitive testing; they're simply looking at your record and see if you've gotten in trouble or expelled from somewhere or something like that. You're going to get the last word because that's the end of medical matters this week. Okay. For the absent Kelly McCormick and Peter Breyer, I'm Brett Delone. And have a happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, everybody, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next Saturday.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.